All right, Mark chapter 1. We'll pick up the reading there in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, speaking of Jesus, and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Father, you, you are holy, and you're a God to be feared. And Lord, we thank you that you've put your fear in us. We pray it would deepen. Lord, we want to revere you. We want to know you. We want to trust you. As awesome as you are and unapproachable as we heard earlier, Lord, you've allowed us to come into your presence through your Son. And Lord, and You be our righteousness. Thank You for such righteousness. Lord, I pray that in this hour You'd help Your people. You'd help me proclaim Your truth. Lord, it, as James was saying earlier, we, Lord, we hold these Bibles. What a precious gift. Lord, there's Christians, Your own people, that don't have them. And Lord, we do well to read through them and get the whole counsel of God. But Lord, it's times like this we want to just pause and stop and gaze. I pray You'd help us. For Christ's sake and His name, I pray. Amen. Now we all, we all know that Jesus prayed. That was, that's not really anything new to us. Um, however, I mean, if you're new to Christianity or new to the Gospel or you've never read the Gospel for the first time, you're learning, trying to learn who this man Jesus, maybe you heard of Him before, who, who is this Jesus Christ? And you're reading along and you get to verse 35, you're likely going to be a bit surprised. I mean, after all, Paul, Mark up to this point has supplied witness after witness. Mark himself and then John Baptist, and then the Father, and then the Holy Spirit, and then demons, and then even Jesus Himself when He says there in verse 17, I will make you fishers of men. All of them bearing witness to the divine nature of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. In addition to those testimonies, we, we, we saw in the last message the demonstrations of Jesus' authority over demons and disease. And then you get to this verse, 35 here, and you find out that He prays. You mean this Holy One of God who has all authority in heaven and upon earth and can do whatever He wants to do and needs to do he prays? Yes, He does. That's what Mark wants us to know. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to know. And this further builds 
Tim mentioned the word mystery. It further builds this mystery of this person, person, Jesus Christ. Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, He departed and went out to be in a desolate place, and there He prayed. The Son of God. As much as we don't understand the hypostatic union, that is the union of Christ's divinity joined to His humanity, as much as as perplexing as that is, and and as beyond us as it is, and it is far beyond us, and as careful as we need to tread upon that ground, brethren, we we must do our utmost to tenaciously uphold these two truths that Jesus Christ is fully man and Jesus Christ is fully God. Because that is what Scripture teaches us. And brethren, let me tell you, that is what all the powers of darkness are dispersed and dispatched to undo in the minds of men. All you got to do is look out. You see it everywhere. Every single false religion is built upon a foundation that's either void of Jesus Christ or has somehow, in some way, corrupted the person of Christ. And the latter is far more prominent. False religions, they'll be glad to take Jesus on board and corrupt His person. And what you you have is a false gospel. A hopeless religion. We went over this some when we were looking at Jesus and His baptism. The hypostatic union. I'm not going to rehash that. Only only to to state and remind us that this Jesus, you talk about mystery. This Jesus... He grew grew in wisdom and favor with God. This Jehovah, we were just celebrating and remembering, He grew in wisdom and favor with God and man. That's what Scripture reveals to us. It tells us that Jesus didn't know the hour of His return. It tells us Jesus didn't consider His deity and equality of God to be a thing to be exploited as a man. But as Paul puts it, He emptied Himself or made Himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Scripture indicates that Jesus willingly forfeited or surrendered some of His divine attributes to live out His life fully as a man here on earth through faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, remember it? If I cast out demons, by what? By the power, by the power of the Spirit. Right? By the Spirit of God. That's where the power came from. If I've cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The Hebrew writer tells us Jesus offered Himself through the eternal Spirit. He offered Himself without blemish to God. He he says to Nathaniel, you're impressed because I knew you? Uh, You'll see greater things than these. You're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And that's a pictorial illustration or indication of the full and free access of spiritual power given to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And brethren, you know what the glorious reality is? We have the same access. 
through the same Spirit. We do. But my point here being Jesus Christ lived out His life the same way you and I are called to live out our lives. Walking by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit. In step with the Spirit. And praying at all times in the Spirit. And as we gaze upon our Savior here in verse 35, that's precisely what we have happening. A man filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, to do what? To seek some secluded place to pray. To pray in the Spirit. As we discussed in Galatians, that that language of walk and led by and in step and pray in the Spirit, those are word pictures that speak of, of making oneself completely dependent upon the Spirit's aid and power. Surrendering oneself to the Spirit's control. It's to orient yourself toward and yield yourself to the Spirit's influence and will in your life. He's the person that provides the enabling power to walk with God. He he is the one who, who makes intimacy with God happen. And He's leading Jesus right here to that very thing. To commune with His Father. To yield Himself to His Father's will. James had mentioned it. Jesus was all about doing His Father's will. And so He would go to His Father and He's imploring His Father for power to carry out that will. That day, the day, that day He's in that morning, the day all that lays before Him, He's seeking His Father for help. We should read it again. Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it's still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place. And there He prayed. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Holy One of God. There's a number of ways I could take this passage. We could talk about a lot of different things. I could easily start quoting some E.M. Bounds and put most of you under a guilt trip because you're not spending two to three hours a day in prayer. Um, Personally, I don't find that altogether helpful. But I mean, who here is... Who can say they're satisfied with their prayer life? Satisfied with the time they spent with the Lord in prayer? I don't want to try to convince you from the mouth of E.M. Bounds or the mouth of George Mueller. Or you know, there could be there could be merit in that. Could be profitable. Yes, I'm not saying that couldn't be. Or Paul Washer or myself or anybody. I want us to be impacted just looking at Jesus' life of prayer. Just look at him there. I want Jesus' prayer life to do all the talking. Because it does, brethren. It does. Do all the convincing, all the impacting upon our lives. Jesus was a praying man. And He was a praying man. Not just to set some nice little example for us to follow. Certainly was that. But He's a praying man, brethren, out of necessity. He was a praying man because he made himself fully dependent upon his Father and the Holy Spirit for every single thing in his life. Everything. Amongst, I I hate to use the terminologies, but amongst us Reformed or or many Calvinistic sovereign, choose choose your adjective, uh, circles of doctrinal persuasion, sovereign grace, 
This subject of prayer tends to be a difficult, or create difficulties, rather. It can. More so in a practical way than in an actual reasoned-out doctrine. The tendency, you see, is to pit sovereignty against prayer. That's, that's what happens, practically speaking. The difficulty comes in trying to reconcile a sovereign God who is a, a determined, decreed will for certain things, that, for everything to happen in eternity past. Trying to reconcile this sovereign God with all His decreed will in eternity past with the most certainty, as Scripture would show, the necessity of human agency pleading with this sovereign God to bring those eternal things to pass. Both those things are true. And both those things cause Christians trouble sometimes. They end up grappling. I think every Christian, nearly every Christian, grapples with this subject to some extent. For most of us, it's usually in the beginning of our journey. And hopefully what you discover, if this is something that you've, an issue you've grappled with, is that when you start to elevate any one truth in Scripture above all the rest of what Scripture teaches, you end up you end up gross with a grossly imbalanced understanding of that truth. And that's not, brethren, that's not what God intends for us to have. Most of you well know the danger of an unbalanced understanding of God's sovereignty, particularly as it relates to the subject of prayer. And what is it? What does it produce? Prayerlessness. There's a reason why Wednesdays aren't as full as Sundays. And I think I'd probably say that in every single church on the planet. There's a reason. People don't think it's necessary. And we could say a lot of things to correct the prayerlessness related to the sovereignty of God, but I don't think we really need to go any further than Jesus Himself right here and see that God's sovereignty is no obstacle to prayer. In fact, what we're going to discover when we look at the life of Christ, that God's sovereignty is actually a catalyst for prayer. It provokes prayer. Because God is sovereign over all things and He's all-powerful, Jesus is, it makes Jesus to be quite persistent in this thing called prayer. In fact, His life is a demonstration of the necessity and priority that prayer is to have for every single human being. That's what I've entitled the message. The necessity and priority of prayer. Jesus is fully divine, making Him sovereign. Jesus is fully man, therefore He prays. He prays. What is prayer? It's an avenue of worship. It's an avenue of expressing our need. It's an avenue of receiving from God. This is what we find our Savior doing here. There's no conflict for Jesus and therefore it should be no conflict for us. Why? why? I mean, Tim had preached on faith last week. It's very connected to prayer, brethren. Faith is a huge element of prayer. Why don't people pray? They don't believe it really matters. When you boil it all down, they don't think it's necessary. They really don't think it matters. It really doesn't hold any significant value. Be be that for theological reasons or not. 
that God's really not going to do anything. He's not really going to hear. He's not really going to, it's not going to really, nothing I have to say is ever going to be responded to. There's not going to be any, nothing effectual is going to come out of my, from my heart and, and to, into God's ears. People don't pray because they believe that whatever they're choosing to do instead of prayer is more important. It's more necessary. It holds, holds more value. That's why they don't do it and that's why they don't make it a priority. That's truly, that's the bottom line. But when it does come to theological reasons, an overemphasis of God's sovereignty can and has sadly produced a prayerlessness that ought not be found in God's people. Not God's people that are seeking to follow the Scriptures. Where God's sovereignty actually integrates human agency, you and I, as a vital component to carrying out His divine decrees from eternity past for all humanity, for everything that's going to happen. Isn't that mind-blowing? Brethren, just a week ago, we're praying and fasting. How many many times and seasons you had with the Lord and prayer and got alone? Brethren, you were pouring out your heart, right? Did you feel like you had some strings attached to you? Or you were restrained? Or you were being forced by some outside force to pray? No. You were bearing your heart's desire. Right? You know what? Every single bit of that, every single one of your prayers was ordained in eternity past. We don't typically think that way. But it was. You were actively carrying out what God was purposing to be carried out in your life, in that week, for eternal purposes that will unfold and be seen at some time, some point in history. God in His own sovereign wisdom, brethren, has made His own people an indispensable means in carrying out those decrees of eternity past. That is mind-blowing. It's crazy. But it's true. And as wonderful as that, I could camp out there really the rest of the message. But I just want, I just want us to continue looking at Jesus here in verse 35 because I'm convinced in doing so, that just completely dissolves in midair the whole sovereignty debacle and hindrance to prayer. But more, moreover, looking at Jesus, it highlights for us the necessity and priority of prayer. Again, verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it's still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Why is Mark giving us all these little details about Jesus' morning activity? Getting up early before the sun. Goes out to a desolate place. Well, just think about it. What happens at daybreak? So especially in Jesus' situation. You know, he's kind of living a nomadic lifestyle. He's traveling about. You know, it's kind of like a campsite type. Of, I mean, think about the men's retreat, right? You're trying to wake, sleep, still sleep in the morning and you hear the pans rattling and all of a sudden you got conversations going. You know, things start happening, right? Things start moving. You hear a little chatter. You hear noise. Distractions happen, right? Jesus saw to it that He carved out alone time with His Father daily before entering any distractions, encountering any distractions. And other passages in the Gospels would would make clear that this is not just a one-time occasion that Mark's bringing to us here. No, this this is Mark allowing us to peer in, giving us a little window to look in to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is 
how he started his day. He, he got up early. Not, not because getting up early makes you super spiritual. He, he got up before everyone else so he could be alone. So he could be alone with his father. He could spend some uninterrupted time with his father because such a time was necessary. And because such a practice, because it was necessary, such a practice, he made a priority in his life. He didn't wake up and run to the coffee. He didn't wake up and grab his iPhone. He didn't wake up and start breakfast. He, he didn't wake up and start talk, chatting with Pete about the day ahead of them and the journey and what they're going to do and what kind of food we got. We got preparations. No, he prioritized a private meeting with his father. Well, before the squirrels started scampering about in the leaves and any rustle and bustle, and if you've hunted before when it's dark, you don't hear anything. That's one of the first things you start hearing. I don't know if they had squirrels in the Middle East, but you get my point. This should speak something to us, brethren, about the importance of prayer. And I know, praise God, there's a good good number of you here I'm preaching to the choir. But does your prayer life line up with Jesus? Yeah, maybe your schedule, you know, due to work or some other thing, school, or it's not, not structured a bit differently where you're not afforded the ability to get up in the wee hours in the morning. But I don't think we want to get swallowed up in the minutia of the exact moment of the day. What we want to be impacted by is the priority that Jesus places upon prayer. Revealing how he saw to it that he was going to spend time alone with his father before he faced anything that was going to be that was going to require his energy, his thoughts, his time in that day. That would certainly require divine aid and power and faith and wisdom if he was going to live a life that was going to glorify God. If he was going to live a life that was going to fulfill his father's will. Brethren, he had needs just like you and I have needs. Again, he was fully man. So before encountering one person or one problem or anything, he prioritized communion with his Father. Verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. In the original language, this kind of comes across more of like a rebuke. Kind of start, Jesus, come on, we're look, we've been looking for you. Wait. I think it was no different for Jesus than it is for you and I. There will be people and there are things and there are tasks that are constantly calling for our attention. There will always be more demanding, more calling for our time. Yet there's always something more important. And that is time with the Father. Jesus, the one you and I are to follow, prioritizes prayer over against the many and great demands that were crying out for His attention. Work to do, problems to solve, people to heal, issues to address. Just, you know, there's just no end to it. 
Those things tend to hunt you down like a bloodhound, right? I mean, it's like the disciples here, searching for Jesus. But Jesus needed something else first. That's why we find Him praying here. Not, not because it was a customary practice. Not, not because He was fulfilling some kind of law to pray. Not to check off a list because you know, this is what you know, Jews are supposed to do. You know. Not because it provided a nice example, like I said, to the, to the, to the, for His disciples to follow, although it did. That's not why Mark provides this window for us here of Jesus' life and how He began His day. Jesus is praying because Jesus needs to pray. And, and brethren, if our sinless Savior needed to pray, how much more do you and I need to pray? I mean, I can, I can guarantee you this. Not one millisecond of His prayer life was confession of sin. Was confessing His cold-hearted patheticness which probably occupies who knows what percentage of our prayer life. But remove all that from the equation. Jesus saw there was need to lay hold of His Father. There was need to have a meeting with His Father. And that's where we find Him in the dark while the disciples are over there snoring. I submit to you if, you, if you make Jesus praying the reason for it, any other reason than why you and I pray with, with the removal of confession of sin, then you end up creating a Jesus that's no longer fully man. You do. Jesus prayed out of necessity, and that is why we see Him make it such a priority. I mean, if you get anything out of this message today, if this verse speaks anything to your soul, I, I, I pray it may speak that. It will convince you of that, of the necessity and the priority of prayer as seen in our Savior. You can flip over just a, a couple chapters. Mark, Mark records like three prayers, I think it is, of, of Jesus. We'll look at the last one as we close, but here's a second one, Mark 6. We see him praying. He's a reference to it. Mark 6 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. Again, secluded place. To pray. Seeking place to get alone for the purpose of praying. You can turn back to chapter 1. Luke records far more instances of Jesus praying than any other Gospel. In Luke 3.21, we find Jesus praying at His baptism. In Luke 5.16, He prays after healing people. In Luke 6.12, He prays prior to choosing the twelve. In Luke 9.16, He prays before feeding the 5,000. In Luke 9.18, we find Him praying alone with Peter, as, Peter, as Peter confesses He's the Christ. In Luke 9.28 and 29, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain transfiguration and He prays. In Luke 10.21, the 70 return and Jesus offers a prayer of thanksgiving. 
In Luke 11, 1, Jesus gives the disciples the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. In Luke 22, 32, Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. In Luke 22, 39 through 46, we find Jesus praying three times in Gethsemane. We'll, we'll look at that. Luke 23, 34, we find him praying on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And, and the Holy Spirit, brethren, grabs hold of Jesus' very last words on earth, and they're a prayer. In Luke 23:46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Mark it down, Jesus was a praying man. His whole life embodied a life of prayer. But what really blows me away about verse 35, Mark chapter 1, and what really in this verse underscores the necessity and priority of prayer in Jesus' life, what really highlights this and brings it to reality is the context that precedes this statement. And rising very early, grab that, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, He departed, went out to a desolate place, and there He prayed. From verse 21 to verse 37, we're roughly talking about a 24-hour period. From the time Jesus enters that synagogue and starts preaching in the morning of the Sabbath, to the time his disciples find him at, at, in the daylight hours there at the end of or in verse 37 as he's finished finished as he's finished praying, that's roughly a 24-hour window that Mark is allowing us to peer into and see Jesus' life. And brethren, listen. I, I know if you've never preached before, I it might look easy to you. I mean, perhaps you think, you know. That's easy for us. I mean, you see me up here and James and Jeff and Tim. It's like, well, you know, it's kind of it's kind of natural to them. It's no, they're, you know, no biggie. They're they're standing there. They're talking. Yeah, once in a while they might get a little bit worked up, but but honestly, it doesn't seem all that demanding on the body. It just doesn't. But let me tell you, I, I'm just going to speak for myself. I might just be the lightweight here, but but there is a spiritual dynamic at play and a weight about this thing of preaching and hopefully a wholeheartedness in delivering the truth of God's Word that I find just very exhausting. I do. I, when I get done, I just, I just want to, I just want to isolate, get alone and, and crash on the lazy boy or the couch or find, curl up in a ball and, and, and don't let, me, don't let that keep you from inviting me over on Sunday. I don't. <laughs> but that's how I feel. I mean, hey, fellowship can put wind in your sails, right? And, uh, but and He giveth more grace. That's certainly true. But preaching generally wears me out. And it's not because I'm getting older. It's always been the case. Certainly my age is, is definitely uh, contributing to it much more. But, but preaching takes something out of a man. I think it was R.C. Sproul that said, you take a man who preaches the Word of God, who preaches the Word of God, you take a man who preaches it for 30 minutes. He says that's equivalent to a, a man working manual labor for eight hours. Now, I don't know if that's true, but 
it's Sproul. It probably has to be true, right? I mean, <laughs> but, but, but I say all that to say I, I get a little bit of a feel for the demand laid upon Jesus' body here in the synagogue. He opens up. He gets in there. He's preaching to the people. At least the preaching part. Now, I've never, to my knowledge, cast out a demon. I've tried. But to my knowledge, I, I haven't done that. There, there's no question. That's got to, that has to have an intense draining effect upon you. That, that's an intense activity. You're going toe-to-toe with the devil. Well, we'll get there in chapter 5. Remember the lady with the issue of blood? She reaches out and touches Jesus' garment. And what happens? Jesus stops. He felt something. He felt power coming, leaving Him and going to help that woman. He felt it. I have to think that that feeling is related to a bodily effect upon Him. Something left Him. There was some, some, it took some kind of toll upon His body. Just that activity of her reaching out. And so we got Jesus preaching here, followed by Jesus casting out a demon, and then having no lazy boy to, to, to lay his head, he accepts his fellowship invite to Pete's house. And you know, more gets in the door. You know, if I'm Jesus, I'm, I'm kind of looking for the quiet corner, just kind of zone out and maybe try to recover and, and get a little bit of a recharge. But immediately he's confronted with another healing situation. This time it's Peter's mother-in-law. So he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Again, this, this dynamic energy is, is being exerted. And then we get to verse 32. <laughs> and we see that Jesus can't even leave the house, brethren, because everyone is bringing their sick and demon-oppressed loved ones to Him. And it just becomes this domino effect, this wave after wave of Jesus is pouring out this emotional and spiritual energy of healing this person and that person and that person and dealing with that demon and that demon. Just this went on and on. We're not not told the time. We can just imagine it took hours. No wonder we find Him sleeping in a boat in the middle of a storm. But what we don't find Him doing here the next day is what you and I might find ourselves doing sleeping in. Brethren, he had to be completely wiped out at the end of that day. Had to be. And instead of Jesus sleeping in, after a long demanding day which seemed very much justified, instead we find Jesus waking up before the crack of dawn so he can spend adequate time alone with his father well before he encounters anything or anyone else. What a man. Right? What a Savior. There's a world waiting. Chomping at the bit to get to him. Again, there's 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said, everyone's looking for you. I mean, the sun barely starts rising on the horizon and folks are already back for more. Jesus, where have you been? Everyone wants to see you. I mean, there's needs galore. There's opportunities here galore. I mean, people can't wait to see what you're going to do today in light of the great extravaganza of your wonderful works yesterday. Oh, I couldn't wait for the power to be displayed. And look at Jesus' response in verse 38. And he said to them, 
Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. I didn't come to put on a miracle show. I didn't come to primarily heal and cast out demons. Yes, that is part of my earthly calling. That is part of my earthly ministry. But it's not the primary reason. That's not the primary reason I'm here. Mark is pointing us back to verse 14 and 15, reminding us that Jesus' primary goal was announcing the arrival of His kingdom and proclaiming a gospel message that demanded faith and repentance as a response. Brethren, that's what the miracles here were intended to do. They were supplementing, they were authenticating the message They were expressions of God's goodness and God's kindness intended to lead them to repentance. Calling them to repent and trust. Jesus is warning from town to town. village. He's warning right here. Warning, inviting all to come. The kingdom and its King have arrived. Come. Repent and come. Don't. Treat me like some, some uh, genie to rub, some genie bottle to rub. Don't treat me like a human vending machine. Don't, don't just sit there and idle. Respond to the message and come and follow me. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. But you've got to come. You've got to repent. You've got to respond to my gospel message. Notice the order here. When was Jesus ready to go preach? It was after spending time with his father in prayer. He just didn't jump up and out of bed and let's go preach. After seeking his father's face for fresh strength and guidance and faith and power that was needed to accomplish the mission. Furthermore, Mark here reveals to us what will become an ongoing exposure of the disciples. One we can all too painfully relate to. They're just not on the same page with Jesus. They're ready for another showing of His wonders. I mean, look at all the people. This is exciting stuff, Jesus. They're here again. They're looking for You. You gain great acceptance with the people, Jesus. Luke tells us they would have kept him from leaving town. (laughs) That's how rambunctious and excited and... But you know what? Jesus sees straight through it all. Disciples don't, but Jesus does. He sees straight through all the excitement and He realizes there is no repentance whatsoever joined to any of it. So being grieved, he's ready to move on and share the Gospel with others. And yes, I assume he's grieved. I don't know how he couldn't be. Maybe angry is more the proper term. Mark doesn't tell us what he's feeling. You know why I say that though? You know how I know Jesus' message and His healings and His exorcisms did not result in repentance amongst the people? He tells us so. Matthew records it for us later on in his ministry in Matthew 11. You don't have to turn there, but right after Jesus sets the people straight and rebukes them for their, their misunderstanding or their, their, their poor perception of John Baptist, 
He then begins to openly denounce city after city for their lack of repentance in the wake of His gracious visitation of them. And He says this of Capernaum. This city where we find Jesus right here in Mark 1. He says, And you, Capernaum, you will, be, will you be exalted to heaven? I can see him shaking his head. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to the, until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What an indictment that is. What a statement of judgment upon this city. Jesus is talking about, brethren, He's talking about these mighty works from verse 21 all the way down to 34. Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Let's go, boys. There's nothing here to be excited about. It's time to take the gospel elsewhere. Brethren, get this. Do you know how Jesus knew this? Do you know how Jesus sees through it all? How He rightly perceives the unbelief and the lack of repentance in the midst of all the excitement here? We usually equate excitement with acceptance, right? Jesus sees through it all. How does He do that? I, I really hope you're not thinking, well, because He's God. I seriously don't think that's the right answer. It seems quite evident to me that the right answer is found in verse 35. That's how He knows. I, I don't think we want to miss this. He knows because He just left the presence of His Father and spent time with His Father praying in the Spirit. And He comes forth from there walking in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, in step with the Spirit. And He, because so, He is on the same exact same page as His Father. And His powers of discernment are in tune with the Spirit of God, allowing Him to properly ascertain what's really happening around Him spiritually. He's not missing it. He sees it. He knows what's going on. The place might be filled with excitement, but it stunk. With, it reeked with death. He sees this and understands it, but His disciples don't. And I'm convinced in large part this is so because, because He made prayer a priority and His disciples did not. Jesus is inwardly Angry, grieved at what's greeting him, while his disciples are all caught up in the fanfare of it. They, they fall and cave into the temptation of the approval and praise of man here. Jesus doesn't take the bait. Let's move on, brethren. We're going we're to preach this gospel to the next city. Jesus was a man of prayer. He was in tune with God, brethren, because of it. Do you think spending time with God makes a difference in your life? If you're a Christian, you know that. Absolutely 100%. Has everything to do 
with how your life is lived out. So as we start to wrap up here, let me ask you, let me ask you just a simple question. Do you pray? Do you get alone with God? Do you get alone with God in the secret place? A desolate place? Doesn't mean you have to find some place outside in the woods. Could be. But getting alone with God. Do you do that? Do you commune with the living God? Do you commune with your Father? Do you, do you worship Him? Do you thank Him? Do you, do you call upon Him? Do you pour out your heart to Him? Do you, do you plead with Him? Do, do you wait upon Him? And that be the most urgent and important part of your day. Too busy for that? Too much to do? Let me ask you, has there ever been another human being that has been faced with the, with the number or level of demands that this man, Christ Jesus, has? Has there ever been another human being that's impacted the lives of those he's touched like this man from Nazareth? Well, I think you know the answer to those questions. But just think. Just think how many lives he could have, how many more lives he could have touched, right? How many more people he could have met and how many more people he could have, he could have healed and delivered from disease and demons and if he had not chosen to spend that time praying. Just think how much more time he would have had to do these other things. Of course, that's nonsense, right? But isn't that what we suggest if and when we neglect the prayer closet? It is. We've got something more important, something more pressing. More pressing matters to, to handle, to get done. We've got something to accomplish. And we can be busy guilty of just being so busy with our hands and feet and we should well be busy with our hands and feet but not at the expense of getting our heart truly ready before God to face the day that's before us and all that's before us because you don't know what's before you I, I wonder how much of our own failures in life are related to that very thing James does rebuke his readers saying and they weren't in a good way at all. They weren't doing well spiritually. He rebukes them saying, you have not because you ask not. You're trying to make things happen and they're not happening and you're frustrated. Why? Because you're not even coming to the Lord with it. You're not asking the Lord. You know, trying, trying, to, live the, I was thinking about the, trying to live the Christian life, neglecting prayer, it's like trying to jump in my car and drive to Austin on a tank of gas where the gauge reads E. That's not going to work. <laughs> not unless you've got incredible gas mileage I've never heard of. Brethren, this subject of prayer, it's difficult. I realize that. I, I, find, it to be, I find it to be 
strangely enough, the most glorious and yet the most difficult thing to do on earth. It can be both of those. To do regularly and wholeheartedly and expectantly and vibrantly. How how should Jesus' prayer life help us? It should convince us. In the very least, it should convince us of its necessity and provoke us of its priority. It should shape and inform our commitment to prayer, brethren. However you want to work that out in your daily schedule. Tendency, you know the tendency though. Once the chatter, clatter, distractions happen, guess what? You find yourself on bed at night. Oh yeah, I was gonna. I had that intention. Didn't happen. So often, brethren, we need encouragement to prayer. Jesus knows that. I mean, that's why He gave us the parable in Luke 18. and he tell, he t- So that we would continue to pray and, and not lose heart. Because that's what we do. We lose heart. Praying for something for X amount of time, still no answer. You go into the Lord with the same thing. And it's like, Lord, where is it at? Lord, hear me. What, are you hearing me? All, all this doubt enters in. It's, just, this, it's a battle of faith is what it is. Prayer. You don't want to treat prayer like it's a task or an achievement. or It's a means, brethren. It's a means God's given us to commune with Him. To commune with the living God, the Father of lights, the Lord of glory. It's a means of worship. It's a means of confessing and thanking and pleading and, and weeping and praising and thanking and asking God, asking our Father in heaven, who, brethren, is ever ready to receive your prayer, ever ready to freely give to you. You know, there is reward attached to prayer. Jesus says so in His Sermon on the Mount. He says when you, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who sees in secret. Nobody else needs to see this. Just your Father. And He will see it. He'll see it when you're in that secret place. That desolate place. And your Father who sees you in that desolate place, He will reward you. He will. King James says He'll reward you openly. I think the reward is largely God Himself. But brother, sister, what you just spent a week doing in prayer and fasting was no vain exercise. It was not. By the authority of God's Word, I can promise you, your Father's coming with reward in hand. He is. Because He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Now, God's either true or He's a liar. I tend to be convinced He's a truth teller. So let's close our time in Mark 14. But what was Jesus' reward? If God's a rewarder of them that seek Him, Jesus was seeking. What was Jesus' reward in Capernaum that day? Seeking His Father's face. The reward was definitely wisdom, right? Discernment, protection from the temptation of the praise of men. Wouldn't you need that if you woke up and everybody's at your doorstep? You think He prayed, Father, Lead me not into temptation. I'm convinced He did. And I'm convinced God answered it. He was also rewarded with the faith and strength to move on to the next town and do it all over again. 
in the power of the Spirit. Mark 14. Among many other things, this passage will further underscore the necessity and priority of prayer in Jesus' life and even highlight the fullness of Jesus' humanity for us. Verse 32 of Mark 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, sit here while I pray. And He took with Him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. And He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me. Yet, not what I will, but what You will. And He came and found them sleeping and He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could, could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again He went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again He came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer Him. And He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Brethren, here we see it again. Jesus prays and His disciples do not. And the consequences are extremely great in both directions. Jesus has granted submission and He's clothed with power from on high to carry out the greatest loving act ever. Meanwhile, Peter falls into temptation when identifying with Christ might cost him his life. Why does Peter fall? Because God's sovereign? Well, he's certainly sovereign, but that's not the reason. Peter caved into the temptation of denying Christ and sinning against his Lord because Peter failed to prioritize prayer. He prioritized sleeping over prayer. And it cost him bitter weeping and sorrow and regret. <laughs> our wonderful Savior, our wonderful Savior, despite this, and get this, He prayed for him that his faith not fail. So Peter is actually restored through Jesus' prayer. How humbling is that? And brethren, the Lord continues to pray. He continues to pray for us, for His people. He prays that we might be kept from the evil one. He prays for our sanctification. He prays for our perseverance. He, he prays that our faith may not fail. 
He prays for our joy. He prays for our unity. He prays for our love. That, it, that the world may see it and that the world may identify it and the world may know it and know Him through it. Brethren, we're called to follow Him. Let's strive to have the same kind of heart and commitment to prayer that our Savior possessed and still, brethren, still possesses. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank You. Lord, thank You. Despite what we are, we look at this and we can read the history and we can just, we can't even point any fingers at Peter or any of the disciples. It's like, like we raise our hand, we're guilty, we're the same. Lord, Lord, help us, forgive us of our patheticness. Lord, we're thankful, we're thankful that You've taken us You've lifted us. We're not what we used to be. You've given us a love for You. You've given us, Lord, thank You that we can identify. I hope as Christians, some growth in our prayer life. And Lord, thank You for the times You've met with us. And thank You for the answered prayers. And thank You for this avenue and means to bear our, Lord, to pour all our heart out to You and bear one another's burdens. And Father, help us to grow. Help us to be like our Savior. Help us, help us to prioritize prayer in our life. And Lord, let us let us experience the fruit, the kind of fruit, the kind of spiritual blessing that we find in our Savior as a result of it. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.